0: Last week, we started a study of perhaps my favorite book in the Bible. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that because I'm supposed to maybe pick one of the Gospels or something, but I love the book of Ecclesiastes. We're calling this series Fuel uh, because what Solomon is going to do is he's going to go to every place that people look for fuel, look for purpose, look for significance, look for motivation, a reason to get up in the morning. He's going to go through those things, all of them. And he's going to test them and see if they are worthy. Not if they're good, not if they're fun, not if they're kind of something to dabble in, but if they're worthy to be that thing on which you build your life, that fuel which will power your life. Doctors have this phrase, especially uh, pediatricians use this phrase, failure to thrive. Um, that means basically that an individual is not developing the way they should. They, they don't weigh enough. They're not gaining weight. Um, they're not growing in height. Um, basically, it's a way to say the things that are needed to, to grow and be healthy are not occurring. All right? When I think about failure to thrive in a more spiritual sense, I I think of, first of all, how God wants you to thrive. He did not come up with the idea of you and and imagine that he he didn't imagine, I'm going to make this person to be the model of mediocrity. I mean, he made you with the idea that you would thrive, that you would grow up into your potential as a human being and as a servant of him. So why do so many people fail to thrive? I think that is the question that Solomon is asking in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the answer that he gives us over and over by looking at these different areas that people look to to build their life on is is that those aren't... Enough. They aren't strong enough. They aren't long-lasting enough. They're not big enough to create a life that genuinely thrives, that is lived in abundance, as Jesus talks about. And so after his kind of introduction to meaningless pursuits, he tells us in chapter 1, verse 17, King Solomon, so I set out to learn everything, from wisdom, right, from using my smarts and thinking things over, from wisdom to madness to folly. In other words, I tried it all, okay, and I learned firsthand that pursuing all of this is like chasing the wind. So Solomon is going to try money. He is going to try parties. He's going to try fame. He's going to try big building projects. He's going to try causes. Um, He's going to try it all on and see what works. And we have been invited in kind of a ride-along as he moves forward with this experience. Now, Now, let me tell you quickly, the book of 1 Kings is a great place to go to kind of learn about the lifestyle of this rich and famous person. 1 Kings tells us, about the staggering wealth, the power, the fame that he had worldwide at that time. That's important. All of this is important because it tells you that he was uniquely qualified to be the person to test this. My bank account isn't, doesn't have enough zeros to try all the stuff that he tried, All right, But he had a lot of zeros in his bank account. <laughs> In fact, 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14 informs us that on a yearly basis from the other kings and vassals and people who worked with him, he received on a yearly basis a tribute of nearly 700 talents of gold. Now, a talent may not be a word that you're used to, so let's put it this way. He received on a yearly basis, translate that into metric tons, 23 metric tons of gold each Year. Okay? So he was a very wealthy man. He uh, occupied the leadership role. The, the, he was the king in a very strategic part of the world. All of the trade flowing from the East, from Asia into the world's superpower of the day, Egypt, went through his. Neck of the Woods, and so he had trading ships, and he had various um, enterprises that he was involved in. He was um, Solomon was a very wealthy person. He was a very bright person. He studied botany. He studied um, animal life, and people came to him to learn about these things. So he was he was a scientist. He was a philosopher, and he was in in, in some sense also a theologian. First um, Kings ten twenty two. Kind of give you a little picture of what his um, portfolio looked like. (laughs) The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea, along with the ships of Hiram, another king up north. Once every three years, it returned, carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes and baboons. Okay, I I was thinking, out of all of the descriptions of Solomon's wealth... What is something that can give me a glimpse, an idea of just how rich this was? And I thought, apes and baboons, that's pretty good. I mean, some of you guys have a parrot or a pet snake or some exotic pet like a hedgehog or something. He brought apes and baboons back, all right? So this guy had it all. He had so much money that he had no idea how to spend it all. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, we have kind of this description of the experiment this week that he's going to go through, he's going to explore wine, so basically uh, high culture. uh expensive delicacy type stuff he's going to explore wines he is going to explore music he's going to hire musicians and singers he is going to plant vineyards so if the wine that he imports from other parts of the world is enough he's going to grow his own um, so he's got vineyards he's going to he's going to create parks and gardens he's going to build a temple he's going to take 13 years building his own house lined with cedar and gold and ivory. He is going to build aqueducts and dams and canals to water all of his parks and gardens and vineyards. He is going to have thousands and thousands of servants taking care of his every need, taking care of his every want. Um, He is going to have lots and lots of women as well, and he's going to talk about all of this in chapter 2. What I want to read for you is verse 8. He says this, He says, guys, I collected great sums of silver and gold. Yeah, I'd say 23 metric tons a year qualifies as a great sum. The treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and I had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could Desire, So he starts out looking at the sophisticated side of life. Let's try wines. And I don't know if he was getting wasted or plastered or if he was just sampling various wines from around the world. But he had the resources to try any wine that was out there. I have a friend who who is the sommelier, the wine steward at the Ritz-Carlton, the Fearing's restaurant down there. And I was just asking my friend Paul the other day, so what is the most expensive bottle of wine you have there at the cellar at Fearing's? And he said, well... It's probably the, the, this, this bottle that is $3,500 a bottle. And I was thinking, wow, okay. That is an expensive beverage right there. <laughs> A thirty five hundred dollar. There's some deep, deep pockets. Solomon could try that. He could try the best caviar and all of the finer things of life. Um, he could test that and see if that would bring satisfaction to his life. He enjoyed himself with that. He he did building projects. It wasn't just like he sat around drinking all day or, or kind of entertaining himself. He had these massive projects. The temple, you know, built to, to honor God. The the palace, the homes that he built for his wives and he had 700 wives. So there was a lot of building, towns and cities and vineyards and orchards. He built things. He built he built temples to foreign gods. You may not have known that. His wives came from all over the world. So to make them feel at home, he'd build them a house and build a temple to their gods from back home. So they'd feel at home. So he was building. First Kings chapter 5 tells us he had 30,000 men that were basically his construction crew that built the things that he dreamt up. Um, so he was in involved in in all sorts of imaginative creative kinds of things architecture and designing gardens and interior design that kind of stuff Um, chapter 2 tells us that he threw parties and it's not like you with your guacamole and your grill okay this guy threw parties like a guy who has 23 metric tons of gold a year throws parties. He threw huge parties. I mean, he had the best food. He had the best venues with gardens and the grounds and the the pools of water, the best everything. You know, when you listen to a song on the radio that you like or on Pandora that you like, you download it. When he heard a song he liked, he bought the band. Chapter 2 says he purchased musicians to entertain him. So he pretty much had it all. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 10 tells us he confesses this. He says, Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself. No pleasure. This is the project. This is the experiment. If my eyes wanted it, my ears wanted it, um, my nose wanted it, the smell, I mean, he would buy it. He would take it into his house. Anything. Would he, with all of these different sources of fuel, different sources of meaning that people lean on, would he find something that brought significance to his life? then he tries sensuality the guy had 700 wives from all over the world the guy had 300 concubines look let's 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 tell it like it is here the guy could sleep with a different woman every day for three years and not sleep with the same woman Imagine the issue he had with birthdays and anniversaries. I'm like, I mean, with that many ladies, it's, it's roughly five birthdays or anniversaries a day. You know, it's like he's going out with number 225, you know, for brunch. And then 20 minutes later, he's got an appointment with number 32. Yeah, I don't know, you know, it was a lot to keep up with. But what it's telling us is he had, <laughs> you name it, he had it. And these women weren't just your local Hebrew girls. He had any kind of exotic, any kind of size, shape, color of woman. He had it. He tried it all. And he discovered, chapter 2, verse 26, this too is meaningless by chasing after the wind. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. If girl number 53 doesn't do it for you, is girl 953 going to do it for you? If the $1,000 bottle of wine isn't going to do it for you, is the $3,000 bottle of wine going to do it for you? If the first home that you build doesn't do it for you, is number 700 going to do it for you? He experienced kind of the law of diminishing returns. It's like there were things that were good. There were things that were pleasurable. There were things that he enjoyed. But the more of that that he pursued, the less pleasure it brought him. So pursuing more, less pleasure. Law of diminishing returns. Write this down on your outline this morning. The first thing to write down, the law of diminishing returns. Pursued with abandon. In other words, pursued completely and totally with devotion. Pursued with abandon. What is pleasurable today becomes less and less so over time. Which tastes better the first Twinkie or the thousandth Twinkie? Which is more exciting, the first ride on the roller coaster at Six Flags or the thousandth ride on the Six Flags on the roller coaster? The first completed construction project or the thousandth? What starts as a God-given pleasure, what starts as something that's enjoyable, that puts a smile on your face, it tastes so good, it feels so good, what starts that way quickly loses its power to bring joy and can eventually even create a cycle of addiction, a destructive kind of enslavement, a bondage. And so he says this in verse 17, so I came to hate life. Really? With all that? I came to hate life because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. With the wrong fuel, enough is never enough. With the wrong fuel, some things can be really good, but they can't be really god The spice, the thing that spices up your life, the thing that gives you joy today, simply doesn't cut it as a source of ultimate meaning. And so that's what his experiment proves in chapter 2. There are gifts that God gives us to enjoy, but these gifts are not intended to take the place of God. The created things cannot satisfy in the way the creator himself satisfies. So who will I give my heart to? Scripture teaches that people experience a failure to thrive when they give their heart to anything other than God, other than their creator, an all-out pursuit of money. An all-out pursuit of sex, an all-out pursuit of intellectual stimulation, an all-out pursuit of relationship with another person. That leads you toward futility. And fearful, we are fearful creatures. Fearful that we won't get what's ours That we won't get what we deserve or that somebody else is going to take what we deserve. Fearful of that, we throw ourselves into these meaningless pursuits. But here's the thing. Once you make the shift and decide there is only one thing worthy of my devotion, worthy of my worship... There is only one worthy of my heart. Once you make that shift, then you become free. You become a free radical. You're radical because, we're not talking about molecules here, all right? But you're radical because you have made a radical choice. There are zillions of things out there that I could give myself to. I will give myself to the one true God. That's radical. And you're free because once you choose God, you are free to enjoy the good things that he has given you without being enslaved by those things. You guys seen the movie Moneyball or read the book Moneyball? It's about the Oakland A's and the, the new kind of strategy of, of building a baseball team that they undertook a few years back. And, and kind of the feature, uh, feature person in the movie is the general manager of the club back in the day named Billy Bean. Um, Billy Bean is, is experimenting with this new way of building a team, uh, and he's played by Brad Pitt in the movie. Also, you have a guy named Peter Brand who's played by Jonah Hill, who's an economist who's helping him figure out the best kinds of players. There's a scene that I want you to watch that I think shows what it looks like to be a free radical Um, and this scene is one where they have just lost they've been eliminated from the playoffs and so this character peter brand played by jonah hill is going to show um, billy bean something that he thinks will reframe things watch this with me the visalia oaks and our 240 pound catcher jeremy brown who as you know scared to run the second base. This was in the game six weeks ago. This guy's going to start him off with a fastball. Jeremy's going to take him to deep center. Here's what's really interesting. Because Jeremy's going to do what he never does. He's going to go for it. He's going to round first, and he's going to go for it. Okay? This is... Of Jeremy's nightmares coming to life. Oh, they're laughing at him. And Jeremy's about to find out why. Jeremy's about to realize that the ball went 60 feet over the fence. He hit a home run and didn't even realize it.